Welcome back to the uh, C4 Relationship Management course. If you were with us last week on Easter, you remember that uh, we began to talk about how if you begin to think about your own strained or fractured relationships in life, isn't it true that if they would just see things your way, everything would be okay? Amen. Amen? Right, see? And the reality is that most things in life that require some kind of assembly right? Toys or the barbecue grill or, or, or whatever it is that we buy, they, they often come with a set of instructions that tell us how to put it together. The problem is that they don't include instructions that tell you how to fix it once it breaks. And the same is true for relationships. Relationships are so much easier to start than they are to figure out how to begin to reassemble once they start to fall apart. And the truth is, most of us are better at assembling things, including our relationships, than we are at fixing them and reassembling them when they go broken. But gosh, we sure spend a lot of energy trying, don't we? And last week, we began to look at some of the most common tools we tend to use to try and fix our strained and broken relationships, and we called it the C4 approach to relationship management. We seek to convince, to convict, to coerce, and to control. And we talked about how each of these tools don't really seem to work with anybody. And in reality, we naturally resist all four of these things in our own lives. And yet, in spite of that, over and over again, these are the go-to tools that we first reach for when we find ourselves in conflict with someone that we know or love. We think that we're working hard to try and resolve the conflict, but, but they only serve to make things worse. It, it doesn't work for us or anybody else, and, but we keep trying to work it anyway, and we wonder, why aren't we making progress? Why can't they just figure it out? Why can't they understand if they would just agree with me, everything would be okay? Well, I want to take some more time today to work through these four tools, because I think it's important to not only understand how insidious they are in our lives and in our relationships, but then ultimately to understand how much in contrast they are to the ways that God has pursued a relationship with you and wants you to pursue a relationship with those around you. You see, when you try and convince another person, if you really think about what's going on there, you start by making a case for your own perspective, right? And that you want the other person to understand that your perspective should be the right perspective. But if you think about how that works, what you don't realize is that right from the start, this creates a win-lose situation. And then there can really only be one winner, right? If you're right, then the other person has to be wrong. So there, there, there has to be a loser, in the relationship. Now, rather than entering into a conversation where we're genuinely seeking mutual understanding and trying to work things through, we've unwittingly set up a competition with the person that we're trying to work out the relationship with. One quick question for all of you. How many of you like to be the loser? (laughs) I don't, right? Webster's defines the word convince as to bring someone by argument to belief or consent or some course of action. Or another definition is to overcome by argument. 
So to try and convince the other person that you're in relationship with, to try and persuade them to prove your perspective to be the right one is to enter into the kind of verbal argumentation like we see in a court of law, right? That creates more of an adversarial relationship with the person you're trying to be in relationship with that involves two people or two sides that are functioning in opposition to one another. Now, we're familiar with this dynamic, right? We know how this works. In our country, we have an adversarial justice system where two sides oppose each other in a court of law, and and they try to persuade the jury who's right and who's wrong. So you have a a prosecuting attorney, and you have a defense attorney. And, and, And can you imagine that somehow in our heads, we think that this dynamic is the best way to create healthy relationships with one another? From convincing, I'm sorry, for me, (laughs) convincing, I would say, is my go-to first tool that I try and use when I find myself in conflict with someone. You know, oftentimes I'm so convinced myself that I'm in the right because I, I can see it in my head, I can understand the logic of my argument and why it makes so much sense to me that I just assume the other person, if, if I try and help them exp- understand enough, will see things my way. But in, in the process, the focus goes to arguing my case with them and to try and justify why my truth is the truth. Yet, any of you ever struggle with trying to convince people of the truth? You see, what I don't recognize is that in those moments, I'm, I'm contributing to the creation of an adversarial dynamic with whatever, whoever I'm in relationship with, where there has to be a winner and a loser. And, and I'm not really open to listening, even though I might say that I am. I'm not really opening to listening to their perspective and to understanding what their experience is. Unless I, I want to understand enough to be able to use their, their words to either discount their perspective or to build the case for my own. You, you guys ever experienced that in your conversations? See, chances are you have one of these tools as your go-to tool as well. Which would you say might be at the top of your list when you find yourselves in difficult relationship circumstances? Most of us actually tend to use more than just one. In fact, often they are are more effective when we use them in combination, right? If you think about it, convincing and convicting go really well together as a kind of a a one-two punch, right? To convict someone is to to use the blame and the shame game. I'm going to remind you of all the things that I've done right and all the things that I've done for you, while I'm also going to remind you of all the things that you've done wrong and all of the things that you've done to me, right? And you're going to feel so guilty and ashamed by the time I'm done that you'll simply melt emotionally and our relationship will be fixed, No, that doesn't work that way. You see, Webster's defines the word convict to find or prove to be guilty, to convince of error or sinfulness, to condemn or bring condemnation. You know, I, I see this all the time with married couples who come to me as a pastor seeking counsel about their relationship. Right? Most of the time, when couples come to see me, uh, they come in, they sit down because the relationship just isn't working. 
They've reached a point where they realize they're stuck and everything that they've tried isn't working anymore. And they, they don't want it to be broken. They, they don't want to live with this tension, but they realize that they don't have the tools or the resources or the knowledge to figure out how to, how to get themselves out of the mess they're in. And so they come in and we sit down together and, and there's this initially awkward kind of uncomfortable silence as we're sitting around the table, right? <laughs> and then eventually I kind of say, so what's going on? And what do you think happened? I guarantee you, 100% of the time, both people break out their lists of everything that's wrong with the other person. And they start listing all of the blame and the shame and the, the convicting things that they think are par- the problem with the relationship. And almost invariably, it's never about me. <laughs> it's always about you. To convince and to convict really work well together because once I've convinced you that my perspective is the right perspective, which that means that your perspective is the wrong perspective, it naturally follows, doesn't it, that you're simply in the wrong and that you should be ashamed of yourself. See, in the same way, you can go to the other uh, tools and you can see how coerce and control really work well together as well. They're kind of two sides of the same coin as we use these to try and manipulate other people to do what we want them to do. Webster's defines the word coerce as to persuade an unwilling person to do something by using force or threats or intimidation, or to obtain something by using force or threats, or to restrain or dominate by force. Now, I think it's important that we recognize in really negative and intense situations, this kind of coercion can become physical, along with really harsh verbal threats and intimidation, and we need to recognize that these are truly abusive situations, and that's never okay. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as it relates to the Bible in just a minute. But I also want to recognize that at other times, for the majority of us, most of us experience this force of coercion more as a kind of pressure on us to, to, to do something that we might not otherwise have been inclined or desired to do. We're pressured to give in or to give up, to, to fit in or to go along, to, to shut up or to put up with or else we will not receive something that we want or that we need. Or even worse, we'll receive something that we don't want and that nobody needs. You see, these are all designed with the intent of exerting control over the other person, to manipulate their choices and behaviors so that they will do what we want them to do rather than giving them the freedom and the respect to be their own individual person. See, these twin threats of withholding from people or otherwise punishing people are powerful motivators that influence us as human beings, sometimes when we don't even realize that that's what's going on. As human beings, we're really good at employing these as a means to to influence the people around us and to shape the circumstances to our desires. In many ways, if you think about it, that's how peer pressure works. Peer pressure is a kind of coercion and control combo. Those around us communicate either in direct or indirect ways that unless we are willing to fit in or to go along or to put up with, those around us are going to withhold their approval or their acceptance from us. 
And they'll also punish us by ridiculing us or rejecting us, even to the point of threatening that they're simply just cut off relationship altogether. Now, if you're a teenager, or if you've ever been one, you know that peer pressure can be insidious in adolescence, right? And at school. But that's not the only place this kind of coercion happens. We learn it when we're young, and we learn more insidious and devious ways of employing it as adults, as a kind of socially acceptable way to make our way in the world. If you think about it, this cancel culture that has emerged in our culture is really a kind of socially acceptable coercion and control. Now, all of the four C's that we're talking about have something in common. It's what the person or the people on the other side of them are feeling. And do you know what all four of these feel like on the receiving end? They feel like rejection. They feel like rejection. And we have to understand that whether we intend it or not, rejection is kryptonite to healthy relationships. And rejection is kryptonite to healthy relationships, even if you're the one who's in the right. You see, rejection closes hearts. It limits access. It undermines our positive influence with those around us. On the other hand, do you know what everybody wants? They want to be agenda-free. I want you to like me for me, for who I am, and to engage with me in safety and in trust and with mutual respect. That's what we all desire. That's what we all need. It doesn't seem like it should be so hard to be able to reassemble and repair broken relationships, but too often the problem is we reach for all the wrong tools and only end up throwing fuel on the fire. Now, he said last week that part of this is because reassembling a broken relationship is a learned skill. It doesn't come naturally, and many of us, if not most of us, haven't learned this in our own families of origin. We didn't see it in our homes growing up. It wasn't modeled us by people that we trust and that, that loved us so we could develop the skill to live in our own relationships ourselves. We haven't been taught how to do this. And that's why the real title of our current series is Reassembly required. It's a beginner's guide to repairing broken relationships. Now, we've said most of us want to fix our relationships. We don't want to live in broken relationships. We don't want to live in conflict with one another. We don't want to be uh, separated from family members and friends who we had a great relationship with now, but now we're not even speaking to one another. Nobody chooses that intentionally from the beginning. But in fact, We know that healthy and vital relationships are the most important factor to human well-being and happiness in this world. And yet so little of our time and energy and focus is spent on how to help one another learn to do relationships well. The other reason that we're talking about this in church that we identified last week is that this is at the very heart of what Christianity is all about. This is the message of Easter. Jesus reveals to us that God's love and God's intention in reassembling relationships with a lost and a broken human race requires moving in the direction of those who as yet are unreconciled. Right? Philippians 2.5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 
And if we choose to follow Jesus as his disciples, we will become people who intentionally begin to learn how to do the same thing in our own relationships. We'll work to remove every obstacle, knowing that the goal, from our side at least, isn't reconciliation, but no regrets. Right? Why not reconciliation? The, because we can't control all the pieces. We, we are not able to control what the other person will choose to do. And so while we desire reconciliation to be an outcome, that can't be our personal goal. Our personal goal has to be, what the Bible says, is that we have done everything within our power to make reconciliation possible. But it's up to the other person to also want to choose to live in healthy relationship and pursue wholeness together. This is God's approach to relationship with you and me. In Jesus, he made the first move. He's taken the step of having no regrets. He's done everything in his power to pave the way towards reconciliation, to bring forgiveness of sin, to bring healing to human hearts. He's worked to remove every obstacle possible, but the choice is now yours of whether or not you choose to receive God's reconciliation as his gift to you. And so in the weeks ahead, following the example of Jesus, we're going to be at four decisions that you and I can make that are in our control and that do help pave the way towards reconciliation. However, before we jump into what that looks like in Scripture, I also want to note on this side of heaven, not every human relationship may be reconciled on the human side, right? Some relationships it's simply not safe to pursue reconciliation because the other person is so broken and so toxic and unsafe that it's simply not wise or godly necessarily to force yourself to stay in an abusive and a toxic situation. That's not, I believe, what the Bible teaches us. I don't believe that God expects or requires us to stay in an abusive situation when there is no evidence that the other person is being willing to work at changing the relationship or doing any of the work from their side. And so we want to be really clear for those of us who find ourselves in those extreme and damaging situations, the Bible doesn't say that you, to be a good Christian, you have to subject yourself to that kind of abuse. In fact, God hates sin, Right? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin, and he has worked for centuries and is continuing to working to overcome evil with good. And that's the direction we're going to go today. You see, in the Bible, if you really understand what God has done, reconciliation is reciprocal. It takes two, right? Which means that reconciliation requires repentance. And repentance simply means to change your mind, to go in a new direction, to choose a different path, to change your behavior. We understand that God's forgiveness in Jesus is an undeserved free gift, but it's designed to lead us to repentance. And a mutual reconciliation with God requires us to submit ourselves to the change that is needed in order to be healthy and whole people and to be able to be loving in response to God's love and grace for us. And that's the same process that he invites us into in our relationships with one another. So we can work hard toward 
reconciliation. We can hope and we can pray for reconciliation with one another, but we cannot control what the other person will choose to do and what other people will choose to do. And so the Bible describes for us what this looks like from a Christian perspective. We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 12 today, and we're going to start with verses 9 and 10, where the Apostle Paul tells us, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. You see, to embrace the mindset of Christ, when it comes to our own relationships, he says love must be sincere. It has to be real. There's no faking it. There's no pretending. There's no painting on a smile face and pretending everything's okay. All the while, we know that it's not working, it's broken, and nobody's doing anything to fix it. That's not okay. It means being open and honest about what's broken, about what's sinful. That's, that's really what sin is, right? Sin is just a, a, a missing of the mark. It's a failure to live up to the ideal that God intended when he created this world to begin with. And so if we're just honest about those sinful, broken places in our own lives and in our own relationships, we can begin to talk about what needs to be repaired in order to be able to move forward together. Yet in order to do this, Rather than hating the person, Romans tells us, the Bible says we need to learn to see the other person with the eyes of God. We need to be able to see one another the way God sees each one of us, which means that we learn how to hate the sin, but to love the person because they too are a person that God created and that God intended to be loved. To hate the evil, but cling to the good is the way Paul said it, right? See, in this process, the goal is mutual reconciliation, being devoted to one another, Paul says, honoring one another above ourselves. God asks us to do everything in our power to pursue reassembly and reconciliation, but we can't control what the other person is going to choose to do in the process. And so the passage in Romans goes on to tell us that we can learn to be loving and graceful in our relationships toward others without being required to continue to submit ourselves to either toxic or abusive situations. When we begin to see others through God's eyes and learn to love people the way God loves them, we also learn to give others the freedom and the respect to make their own choices. And the truth is, if you really understand the gospel, the good news message that Jesus has revealed about God, is that God never forces himself on any of us. So for those who follow Jesus then, as Pastor Anley Stanley, he says it this way, reassembly begins with us regardless of who initiated the fuss. <laughs> you see, avoiding the four C's are an important start, but simply avoiding them isn't enough. We also have to replace those tools with, actually, with proactive tools that actually work, that actually help facilitate the process of reassembly. And so we're going to look at the first one today, and the first proactive choice is this. I will get back to, not get back at. I will get back to, not get back at. This is what it looks like to love like your heavenly Father has loved you. To love one another as I have loved you is the way Jesus said it, right? You guys remember John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And he goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to convince, convict, to coerce, to control the world, but to save the world through him. You see, in Jesus, God came to get back to you, not to get back at you. To have the same mindset as Jesus, Romans is telling us here, he goes on to say in verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, keep the door open. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with everyone, with one another. Not, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for God's work to be done. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To heap burning coals on someone's head sounds kind of like a painful attack, right? Like a punishment, but, but that's not actually what's going on. It's kind of an ancient idiom that, that we, nobody really understands where it comes from, but the, the, con, the consensus is that the idea is to cause someone to feel sorry about their behavior and to have a change of heart, not by getting back at them, but by returning good with whatever evil they have given to you. You see, the Bible's telling us here that we need to learn to reallocate our hate. We need to learn to hate something rather than directing our hate towards someone. What if it, you today, you left here from church and you went home to your situation at home or to your situation at work or your situation at school and you're thinking about the strained and the fractured relationships that you're dealing with? What if you decided to hate what has happened, but you're going to choose to not hate the person with whom it's happened. What if you decided today to start hating the what, but not hating the who? Because you see, I think if we can all begin to learn to hate the what and not hate the who, we'll begin to see the world and to see one another the way God sees us as well. And we'll begin to see it, make it easier to see the good in them, to see the lovely things in them, to be able to encourage them to become more than they are today. You see, the goal is to get where we can see the other person or other people the way our Heavenly Father sees them and the way our Heavenly Father sees you and me. To love the person but hate the situation. See, until we can do that, it's almost impossible for us to love one another sincerely, as Paul said, because in the midst of the situation, our focus will be on the person and not on the situation. But when I choose to, to honor you because 
Jesus has honored you by giving his life for you, and I choose to honor you as the Bible calls for. I put you first, and I put my needs second. I, I, I don't resist in pride and in my own hurt feelings, but I recognize that you are a child of God, and I want to lift you up, and I want to honor you, and I want to do good to you, because in doing good to you, I have the best chance of overcoming the evil that we're experiencing in the brokenness of our relationship. Jesus said it this way, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. In the 31 of chapter 6, he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. These are the things that we've been taught in the church since we were kids, right? And yet we somehow have lost the ability to apply these things in the nitty-gritty everyday life of our own broken relationships, You see, Paul's implication in in the letter to the Romans is this. I know you have a sad and a difficult story, Romans, right? The Christians in Rome were being persecuted mightily by the Roman Empire. But despite your persecution, despite the difficulty of the situation, despite the unjust situation and unfairness in which you find yourself, this is how I want you to live and relate and respond to others in the world around you. Because this is how you begin to overcome evil, by choosing the good. Evil is overcome by the power of God's goodness in our life, by the power of God's love, when we willingly choose to live according to what God has revealed rather than following our own human nature, which tends to want to follow the four C's as a way of defending ourselves and gaining control of the situation and somehow resisting being hurt further than we already have been. The problem is that never works. You see, when we choose the power of God's love in our relationships, regardless of what the other person chooses to do, even if it doesn't change the other person, it changes you. And it changes your experience of life in this world, and it changes your experience of how you relate to those around you. Now, you may be thinking, I feel like you're putting all the responsibility on me and nothing on the other person. Yeah. That's what the Bible says. That's what God has modeled for you and for me. Because at its core, this is first and foremost about having a reassembled relationship with your heavenly Father. At its core, this this is about discovering a new way of living, a new way of being, a new way of relating that comes from the love of God in Jesus Christ that he instills in us through his spirit that then flows out of us to those around us. It's not something that we can create or manufacture on our own. It's about having a reassembled relationship with God first before it can be about reassembling the relationships with with those around us. The two go hand in hand, and as you read through the Bible, it tells us over and over again that that's what Christianity is about. Jesus said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And where does that lead you? to love your neighbor as yourself. The two have always gone hand in hand. 
and the tension between this ideal that God invites us to see and to choose and to live into, relying on the resource of His love and His grace in our lives, leads to a tension because we know that we're not wired that way. We're not naturally inclined to use those tools as our first choice. But it's in the midst of that tension where God wants to begin to do His work in you and in me. To teach you how to begin to learn to see others through His eyes. To learn how to begin to love with His love. And to experience the genuine freedom and the peace that comes in your life when you know that you've done everything possible to live in the goodness of God's grace and love, to overcome evil with good, and in spite of how anybody else responds around you, you discover the freedom of that grace to be at peace with who you are in your relationship with God. In many ways, and again, unless it's a truly toxic and abusive situation, cutting off relationship from one another is a form of getting back at and is never a healthy, biblical, or Christian way to approach conflict in relationship. Ever. See, Jesus reveals that God's will for us, like he has demonstrated in Jesus, is to get back to one another, not to get back at one another, because that's what the Heavenly Father has done for you and me. So proactive decision number one in reassembling broken relationships is that I will commit to get back to, not to get back at you. See, God didn't stop with forgiveness. God's forgiveness was meant as a means to the end of reconciliation, of reassembling our relationship with Him so that out of that, that new experience, that new learning, we could begin to discover how to reassemble the brokenness of our relationships with one another. God so loved us that He moved in our direction not to get back at us, but to get back to us. And God knows it's not easy. You see, it's our our own hurt and it's our own pride that ignites and fuels the four C's of relationship management. Each of them is an attempt to try and prove that we're right, to, to try and prove that the other is wrong, to try and gain control of the relationship. Pride and hurt always get in the way of healthy reconciliation and reassembly in our relationships. See, in the Bible, we recognize that sin breaks God's heart because sin breaks people and sin breaks relationships. And so as Christians, we want to be more brokenhearted about the broken relationship than we are angry at the person with whom we are in conflict. And so in this process, sometimes reconciliation depends on you much more than you might typically think. We as Christians can't wait for the other person to make the first move. We can't put the responsibility on them if we haven't done everything that we can to open the door, to lower the drawbridge, to try and facilitate reconciliation. So here's our starting prayer as we begin to learn how to reassemble the broken relationships in our lives. Heavenly Father, help me to see blank. You fill in the blank. 
What's the name that comes to mind? Who's the person? Help, Heavenly Father, help me to see them the way that you do. Help me to love them the way that you love them. Do for that other person, God, what I wish they would do for me and use me to be an agent of your mercy, your grace, and your kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not stay in heaven on the throne, but you sacrificed your lofty place to come down to meet us in the midst of where we are. You did not come down to get back at us, but you came back down to get, get back to us. God, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed our own pride and even our own pain to get in the way of the loving, reconciling relationships that we know that you have called us to pursue as representatives of your kingdom here on earth. God, give us the courage and the strength to find new ways of relating with one another, of pursuing one another, and to overcome evil with the good that you have implanted in our hearts through the love of Christ that you have showered on us through the power and the presence of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.